my team is just super motivated by uh, by building a brand that that is meaningful and that has the ability to to actually uh, affect social change and have social impact. Um, we're we're not motivated by top line. We're not motivated by how many shacks we have. Um, we believe that our our vertically integrated transparent model is yes going to drive profit, but um, but we believe that it'll. As we scale, we get a larger megaphone and we get a larger ability to um, to participate in some of like the very big issues that our industry is facing. That's Luke Holden. He's the founder and CEO of Luke's Lobster. I'm your host, Patrick McGinnis, and this is FOMO Sapiens, part of the HBR Presents Network. My name is Patrick McGinnis, and I'm the guy who invented the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out. Today, FOMO is an epidemic, and it's changing us so much that it sort of feels like we're evolving into a new species. But FOMO doesn't have to take over your life. You can find the power to choose what you actually want and the courage to miss out on the rest. I'll show you how right here on FOMO Sapiens. FOMO. 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 Welcome to FOMO Sapiens, the show where I interview people who are changing the world and ask them how they choose from among the many opportunities and options in their busy lives. Lots of people dream about becoming an entrepreneur. Then they graduate from college, get a job in the corporate world, and put those dreams on hold, at least for a time. They learn hard skills, build up some savings, and move on up the corporate ladder. And it makes sense. But just because you have a demanding job doesn't mean that you can't be an entrepreneur at the same time. You can start your business part-time. And if things go well, you just might find that this is your pathway to becoming a full-time entrepreneur. My guest today did just that. Luke Holden grew up in Cape Elizabeth, Maine as a third-generation lobsterman, and he started learning the trade at the age of 13. After embarking on a career in investment banking, he opened his first lobster shack in New York's East Village in 2009. Today, he's the founder and CEO of Luke's Lobster, a restaurant and seafood processing company that has raised private equity and is expanding globally. A graduate of Georgetown University, Luke has been named to Forbes 30 Under 30, Inc. 30 Under 30, Zagat's 30 Under 30, and Crane's 40 Under 40. He lives in Maine with his wife and daughter. Welcome to FOMO Sapiens, Luke Holden. Thanks for having me, Patrick. Uh, it's my pleasure. Um, so I like to start the show with the first uh, same question every week. And my question for you today is, everyone feels a little FOMO sometimes. So what turns you into a FOMO sapiens? I think the fear of missing out can be can be cut two ways. It's It can be motivating or it can be wildly distracting. And as my professional career has, has developed, I think I've gotten a lot better at, at delineating what's motivating and what can be distracting. So... Um, it's that concept of Pareto principle and the 80-20 rule and ultimately trying to, to really, really focus on the 20% that can drive the greatest results. And, and as, I've, as I've matured, I think I've gotten a little bit better at identifying that 20% and trying not to chase all of the exciting opportunities out there. That's some wisdom. Uh, you, know, you know what what gives me FOMO? Lobster rolls. And in fact, in preparation for today's interview, I did a little market research. I actually ate at the Luke's Lobster last night in Union Square, um, and I had the combo. And I have to say, I have to say, I mean, all these years later, because I've been eating at Luke's Lobster since, like, I don't even know. Day one. Day one. All these years later, it was as good as it's, seriously, it was as good as, as anyone I've ever had. 
what is Luke's lobster? What's the problem you're trying to solve? And, you know, if I walk into a store today, like, what am I going to find in there? So we started almost 10 years ago, and uh, which is wild. But the story is, is, is truly I was sitting at my investment, be- investment banking desk back in, in, in the summer of, of 2009. I was, I was missing home, so I went online looking for, for a lobster roll. Couldn't find one that was, as you described, an authentic, high-quality, high affordable Maine lobster roll. So I started to write a business plan around trying to solve why this didn't exist. I mean, these great chefs are screwing this thing up so badly. Um, after a little bit of research, I, I ultimately couldn't find a good answer. Like Real estate was available. Um, there was a lot of employable people in 2009, for sure. Um, I had the distribution all solved because my father was the... He was a, he was, I'm a third-generation lobsterman. My father was, had the very first lobster processing license in the state of Maine. So I grew up on boats, docks, and processing facilities. So this was, this was in my DNA. The, the banking was really a departure from what my upbringing was. Wait, so you didn't dream as a young boy to, to be an Excel jockey? You, you wanted to be a lobsterman? I did want to be a lobsterman. Yeah, it was my, it was my junior year of my... Um, it was my, my junior year at Georgetown. My parents basically were like, if you're going to continue to lobster, we're, we're just not going to continue to support the education. It's just this, this doesn't stack up. So that's when I started doing internships in finance in 2007. Obviously. By the way, that, think about this. Like, the typical thing is like, if you keep getting drunk and fail all your classes, we're not going to pay for your education. In Maine, it's like, if you keep lobstering, <laughs> we're not going to pay for your education. Yeah, and, and honestly, the industry's come a long way in the last 10 years. Um, I mean, I would be proud for... For, for my kids to get into the lobster industry nowadays, it's it's much more of a sustainable living, and um, and I think we've played a meaningful part in that. Mm-hmm. But um, but still, I mean, the the concept, yeah, of, of my parents weren't weren't wealthy, so for them to be be taking on debt and, and investing in my future and not doing anything else was definitely troublesome for them. Mm-hmm. So so that's when I that's why I did the did the the banking thing, and and yeah, I mean, it was a great experience in the sense that I got to. Uh, meet new people and work hard and put some savings away and ultimately that's it was it was about two and a half years after starting that I had fifteen thousand dollars of savings um, I went to my dad and said hey do you want to uh, you want to start a lobster shack with me and he's like what's it gonna cost and I said well I think I can do this for thirty thousand dollars so he's like yeah I'll put up fifteen and I didn't know this until a couple of years later, but he literally borrowed the fifteen thousand dollars against his four hundred one k. Wow, that's insane. It is um, not something I would advise, Mr. Holden. That that is, that's incredible. Dad's always. Uh, I'm the oldest of three boys, and he's always he's always prioritized the three of us, and mm-hmm. very much very. He's a big steward of ours. So, um, so thirty thousand dollars. I mean, we we signed a lease September first, opened October first. I mean, I found a partner on Craigslist of all places. Yes, um, a Yale guy that uh, was 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 a food writer and and honestly just wanted to get involved in the action. He had uh, um, spent some time in in Maine and understood the, the 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 concept of a quintessential Maine lobster shack and the way the food deserves to be served and. Um, it was a uh, uh, it was a great partnership. It still is today. He's he's the marketing guy, and I'm more of the finance uh, operations type. It's a little bit of a left brain right brain partnership. Who would have thought we'd have found that on Craigslist? The principles that the business was built on was was a 
a super high quality affordable Maine style lobster roll and in treating people the way you'd like to be treated. And fast forward 10 years, um, we're, uh, we're a certified B Corp. Um, we run our business on the concept of stakeholder theory versus shareholder theory. And we believe that a lot of our success has been attributed to that concept of finding win-wins and making long-term decisions. How many stores do you have today? We've just over 40. Okay, over 40 stores, and, and, and that's been quite a rapid growth. But for your first year, you were working full-time in finance. You were, you know, that's not a, that's not a light job. That is pretty time-intensive. You started your first store. You brought in Ben as your partner, who, you know, as we, you found online. And he was sort of there when you couldn't be, and then you guys were partnering on that. And it's pretty astounding because um, the fact you were able to do this on $30,000 in New York City says a lot about what happens when you um, when you have to be creative to start a business. That combination of, listen, I can't afford to quit my job, even though you know I have this big idea. Um, but at the same time, I, you know, I'm not going to be able to raise $100,000. That that makes you sort of be a lot more scrappy than you would have been. And as a result, I, I believe you you uh, about a year into it, you were able to quit because you could pay yourself like $35,000, which is which is not a you know a, it's not a huge salary in New York City. But I th- th- that story is, and it's really resonated with me. I, I, you know, it's 10% entrepreneurship, being a part-time entrepreneur. And you did that for a year until you w- went full-time. Um, do you think, you know, as you look back, do you think that having started part-time, you know, what were the, I assume there were some advantages to that. Obviously, you couldn't move as fast as some other people, but what did it really give you to start part-time while you had your job, you know, there for you? I think a big advantage of, of- exploring that 10% entrepreneur model is is kind of delevering the the when you put a ton of stress on something needing to work i think that ultimately manufactures less than optimal decision making so i in in many ways like this was this was and is a passion project mm-hmm. like if if i had it, if I had my way, I'd, I'd, I'd be running a lobster boat. I love being on the ocean. I love being part of the lobster industry. So um, we've been able to thoughtfully build this business over the last 10 years and, and make those long-term decisions. And we've never really been under the pressure to, I, I, I mean, it's, it's not like it's all been sunshine and, and rainbow since we started this 10 years ago, but we've ultimately been in the driver's seat to, to make the decisions that we would like to make. Yeah, and when you talk about passion project, I think one of the things that you do, which I notice in a lot of great entrepreneurs, is that when I think about your business, I mean the business has your name on it, which is you know which is cool um, as as long as it's successful. Um, but you've got a business that really reflects who you are. You know, you are from the state of Maine. You love you know, being on the water. You also had a finance background and worked in banking and, and can you know, can do the numbers and can do the strategy. Um, but you've also integrated your brothers into the business. Um, and so it's a family affair and your dad. And so as you think about um, this business and how you've grown it, you know, how much, uh, as a founder, how important is it? You know, people talk about passion. you got to love what you do. Well, that's great, but you also have to have hard skills that allow you to be successful. But how much, you know, could you have been this successful had you opened up a coffee shop that had nothing to do with these passions of yours? There's no chance. I mean, there's there's so many days, uh, months, quarters that that go by where things don't make sense. You're constantly like trying to trying to get to the to to get to the other side of a of an issue, 
and and without without passion at least for me i i wouldn't have been able to 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 lead this team to the success that that we've had today um and i've also just the, the concept of being passionate about something and then sharing that passion with the team and then your passion becoming their passion and their passion becoming your passion i mean that that snowball effect is what was what's played into the success that we've had and and as you grow, your if your stores are are it's really cool how you do it. So it's, you walk into the store, and this isn't a store that has a ton of infrastructure. It's quite simple, which allows you to keep the cost down. And then you have a couple people working there, and they're you know, typically young people. It's not that you know these are people who are the front line of your business, and you know they're not. This is they're they're people who um, you know oftentimes in these roles have high turnover. Um, it's hard to find people, no matter where you are, who can who can be customer centric. How do you infuse the culture into the frontline, you know, customer facing people in order to make sure that, as you said, like you know, you walk in and your stakeholders, the client has an awesome experience every time in retail, in food. I think it actually starts from the beginning. So, uh, well, I, I don't think everybody knows this about our brand, but but we're we're a vertically integrated seafood company. So we're working directly with with our fishermen each and every day from Point Judith, Rhode Island, up through up through Quebec. So we're dedicated to sourcing our lobster, crab, and shrimp only from sustainable resources, and then we prove it through traceability back to the source. Um, so we're we're in custody of the product literally from the moment it comes out of the water um, to our customers' uh, plate. So we're um, it's our fishermen to our production facility, which is in uh, Saco, Maine. Um, what that plant looks like is. 50,000 square feet, uh, 150 teammates. I mean, we're producing north of 5 million pounds of lobster a year, 2 million pounds of, of crab. So, I mean, this is a SQF Level 3 MSC certified um, food production facility. So half of our business is the restaurant group, and then half of our business is actually a, um, a third-party distribution business. Um, I was down in Austin last week receiving uh, the Global Supplier of the Year Award for Whole Foods. Which is a wow, huge congratulations! Huge Thank you. Yeah, it's 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 something we've been working very very hard on. Um, but the, so the reason I I bring up our supply chain to answer your question is um, our our teammates we're able to recruit teammates that ultimately see the transparency of our supply chain and the dedication that we have to sourcing quality food and, and building better relationships for for our fishermen and the supply chain of the food. Um, through the production facility, and then finding aligning ourselves with with partners like Whole Foods. So um, we we very much uh, we spend a lot of time and resources on training and, and and educating our team and 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 that investment in them and 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 then the transparency that we have from 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 literally ocean to ocean to plate um, ultimately is is motivating for our team. So. Um, and once 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 you kind of start one of these shacks, we call our restaurant shacks. Once we get it, once you start it off with the right people, good people attract good people, and we've kind of got that concept right from day one, from um, from the team that that leads these shacks to um, to to the entry level uh, um, teammate. And and what you're doing on vertical integration is it's astounding. I think a lot of people don't know that about your business. It has been written about. Um, and it's why it tastes so delicious. But it's also really hard. And I think about, I saw this fascinating documentary about a guy from, I think, Italy that went to the state of Maine and tried to open a, did you see this film? I, I did, yeah. yeah. 
and 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 so he tries to open this this seafood processing plant and it fails and it fails because of cultural issues and so like he can't connect with the local people because maine is a if and i hope anybody who's listening if you haven't been there that you'll visit us someday soon um and you can go see luke's um he has a has a lobster um, shack up in uh, where is it in maine Tenants are, but we're also opening in Portland in June. Oh, that's great we'll news that for all. Too. Yeah, I want to yeah. hear about that. So, if you watch this film, these are places where, um, you know, these are small communities where people, they're, you know, they want to be able to trust you and look you in the eye and feel like they understand where you come from when you're doing business. And, and as a result, not just anybody can open up a, a business and and succeed. You have to really understand the people and make sure that you have culture that is open and and that you're that they understand you and i think you know another thing about this business when we talk about kind of the fit that you have with the business is that not everybody could do that um so it is um it's there's what's interesting is you have vertical integration on the supply like i guess on the sort of structural elements but there's also a vertical integration in terms of culture that goes right from the lobsterman or woman all the way through to the to the client um you know when i walk into your stores like I, i've I, I always assume that people who work there are from Maine. They probably aren't. But I feel like I'm going home. And, and I think that those are the types of things that take a business from being an interesting business to being a spectacular business. And so it sounds like it's been smooth sailing. Um, but I, I, I imagine there have been times that have been extremely challenging. So what have been kind of your, your crucible moments where you just sort of you – faced a challenge that was meaningful and what did you what did you learn in that in that process i think um if i was to pick one challenge that uh they would ultimately try and rewrite the or one decision that i'd ultimately try and rewrite um the direction we moved on it, it would probably be the back in back in 2017 um we, we signed on with a par- private equity partner mm-hmm. uh, absolutely phenomenal partner um, they've been so meaningful for me in a transition from founder to CEO, um, put together a formal board. Um, but one pivotal mistake we made was the concept of, um, of, of, of taking learned experiences around other, you know, quote, fast, casual brands and applying it to our brand. Um, for us, we are, we're, we're an everyday celebration but we are not, our frequency is not that of some of our competitors. So we decided, hey, you know, when we took money on, um, we were going to, uh, we were already in five or six markets and we were going to build in those markets that we were already in. Like that was the way to. And that's like East Coast of the United States, that kind of stuff? Boston, Philly, D.C., Chicago. Um, uh, those were Those were the major markets that we were in at the time. So. Let's build those markets out. It doesn't make a lot of sense to our, our the concept back then was it doesn't make a lot of sense to go open up a lot of new markets and and and, sp- and sprinkle a couple of loops here and there. It was we've got our core market. Let's build it out. We'll we'll be able to generate more more profit doing that. And what we really didn't understand at the time was was the average frequency of our guest. So um, by uh, by 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 following the the, the cluster model, um, we ended up going through. Like 2018 was, it, it was it was a tough year because we had never lost before. Mm-hmm. You know, we every pretty much every shack we'd ever opened up was was had strong ROIs and um, um, and didn't cannibalize any sales from from other shacks. So the, there was a there was a period where we had to 
we had to uh, we had to re-understand what not re-understand we had to we had to invest in data understand what the frequency of our guests truly was and then figure out how to build awareness in markets where we were already doing business so that we didn't cannibalize sales and then we could still achieve the ROIs that we were that we were looking for um and and there was no like crazy financial hardship around this but it was it, what it was difficult is is you've got a, a young team you know 8 9 years old that that only knows how to win and and then when you go from from oh geez that wasn't a good decision um why wasn't it a good decision and then trying to trying to then play from that position of 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 trying to figure out why you didn't win it just it changes the dynamic of a team and it's it's funny how contagious winning is and how contagious momentum is and yeah we were both patriots fans so you know we know that we do yeah we know, <laughs> we know that well so that's it, it, that for us in itself was uh um was something that I, I would would have pared back on. I would have continued our strategy of of opening up in in new markets, getting opportunity to understand the market, localize, optimize the shack for that market, and then build your second or third in that market instead of just saying no new markets. Let's build in the markets that we're already in. It's it's a challenge because when you raise private equity, um, and I've been on the other side of the table as an investor, uh, you have a pressure. To deploy the capital because you've oh, you got a new partner they're coming in guns ablaze and they've done a bunch of diligence they figured out you can have x they, they they have an investment thesis about how many stores you should have and how you should build those stores and you um you know hopefully buy into that because you've chosen them as your partner but then if you go and scale quickly with the wrong combo um you can really ruin i mean that's why so many wonderful brands the minute they take private equity, you think about some of the some of the I, I don't want to name names, but um, they end up doing very poorly because not only do they get away from their core mission and overexpand into too many products and all kinds of you know crazy things like that, but they just they they roll out a format that doesn't work way too quickly. I'm curious. You mentioned data, so how did you figure out the frequency of your customer? Like, because I, nobody I don't I, I don't I guess. I'm just curious. Like I go in all the time. Are you able to say Patrick ate at you know these stores these months, or, or what is what is the way that you get that info? The way we get the info is so, so we're not able to say Patrick mm. ate six times um, in the past month. That would have been embarrassing, <laughs> but pop, potentially realistic. <laughs> yes. Uh, what we are able to do is is to identify guys like Patrick. You know this this age, um, this demographic set. This uh, so. And the way we do that is is there's so the direction here was we we were ultimately trying to figure out who our guest was, so then we could take that information and and go say, okay, our ex- our guest exists on this street corner in this market, so we could say, what works here should work here because uh, because of just extrapolation of of demographics. So there's real estate companies that that specialize in this. They'll actually take your your credit card data, and they match it against um, an Experian data set, and through that they can. It's not you wouldn't get a bunch. It's of, anonymized. It's I guess, anonymized. Yeah. Um, but you get the concept of of uh, th- there's there's ten Patricks in this corner in in New York, and you do pretty good here. So uh, uh, there's eight in this corner in Chicago. So you'll probably do eighty percent of the sales, but you can put a business model behind it because you know what you're rents and labor costs will be in so we'll make money so it's um 
we were when we were doing that process of trying to be more informed on real estate selection, we learned a little bit more about our guests and a little bit more around our frequency. Where is this business going? So you mentioned you're opening up in Portland, which I think is, uh, you had told me once, by the way, uh, breaking news, you had once told me you would never open a store in Portland. I remember because I was asking you this and you were like, no. Um, so uh, I guess that's a sign that everybody can change their mind. But where uh, where is this business going? Like, I guess, you know, if we think forward, you know, five or 10 years, um, what is this going to be? My team is just super motivated by uh by building a brand that, that is meaningful and that has the ability to, to actually uh, affect social change and have social impact. Um, we're, we're not motivated by top line. We're not motivated by how many shacks we have. Um, we believe that our, our vertically integrated transparent model is, yes, going to drive profit, but, um, but we believe that it'll, as we scale, we get a larger megaphone and we get a larger ability to... Um, to participate in some of like the very big issues that our industry is facing, whether that's uh, climate change um, and some of the initiatives that, that we've got um, in place right now to, 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 at, least, um, s- to at least be a, a change agent in uh, um, long-term tri- climate change. We've got fishermen converting their boats from diesel, diesel to biodiesel fumes. Um, and we think that if, if we can get 50% of our boats um, um, on this program, in the next couple of years, we can we can reduce a million pounds of, of, of carbon emission in a year. Wow! Um, we've got uh, um, we gave some money to the Ocean Foundation last year, who is doing uh, some research on on kelp and and how the aquaculture of kelp can sequester carbon out of the um, ocean column. So, um, really, what 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 we're and, and the other side of that one is 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 we got to find diversified income for these fishermen as well. I mean, the lobster industry has been super robust after over the last ten years, and at some point in time, it's going to level out, or or potentially, you know, the catch might fall off a little bit. So I'm motivated by trying to find that second, third source of, of income for these guys, so that it makes sense to 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 sustain this industry and work this industry. And um, and those aren't those aren't issues that are going to come come about in the next five or 10 years, but, but um, taking a long-term approach on it, I think investing in um, that space will, will enable us to continue to build relationships with our fishermen. Um, and of course, by the way, like, you know, com- communi- we, as, we, as we build a, a, a global brand, um, we'll get the ability to communicate what, what our fishermen are doing. Um, and hopefully we'll be able to pay them a little bit more because people are willing to pay for those types of types of initiatives and so our, our our significance is is in our vertical integration our ability to tell the story um you know all the while by serving the, the best quality food and and treating people the way we like to be treated so so for us um you know we're going to continue to we're going to continue to um do what we've been doing we we are getting more involved in the consumer packaged goods mm-hmm. so we've got a line of luke's lobster products coming out and in, in uh in grocery what is it going to be there's lobster tails, lobster meat, um, lobster wow. mac and cheese, lobster bisque. That's exciting. When, when is that dropping so I can prepare myself? Uh, so we the lobster meat and seasoning to make lobster rolls and twin lobster tails have been in, lo- in Whole Foods for maybe six, eight months. Okay. 
and then those uh, ancillary products will be coming out this fall. The, the other the, the other point I just want to mention there too on on diversified income is all of these retail products, um, consumer packaged goods, they're all co-branded with the with the cooperative that mm-hmm. we're what we're buying the lobster from, and and a percentage of sales goes back to that cooperative. So we've got all these different initiatives in place around quality and and now branding that that. They go back to the the fishing community, the coastal community, and um, uh, to me, like that's that's smart business. Um, you align interests, and um, and 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 that's that's creating real value for these guys because ultimately, if you just go in and pay more for the lobster, there's nothing, there's no business there to support just paying more than the market price. But when you get the opportunity to go in and say, hey, if if the quality's a little bit better. Or if, if we can align brands and, and that helps us sell a product, um, then then ultimately you're creating r- real income, real margin um, that you can then share. And and, and from our perspective, uh, you know, we'll, being able to just increase, inc- create more, and then and then sharing that more is still more at the end of the day. Yes, uh, and and what's what's remarkable is that you have an investment and you you raise private equity. People. I think a lot of private equity firms, um, I hate to say it, but I think a lot of private equity firms would not necessarily view the world that way. You just said five minutes ago, basically, we don't care how many stores, not we don't care, but that's not our metric. Um, Our metric is creating something really sustainable. But some PE firms would say, well, you know what? I have five years of, I'm going to invest. And in five years, I want to sell and I want to make three times my money. And those are not necessarily irreconcilable, the two positions you stated. But they're, you know, that's not necessarily the pitch that a, that a, that a, a guy like you would make to an investment firm. It, it is the pitch I made to the investment firm. Right. Um, Which is awesome, but unusual, wouldn't you agree? Or, or? It is unusual. Um, we have a, an unusually special private equity partner that, that, that gets it. Yeah. Uh, my, my, my partner, Jay Tackerman over at Quillvest, Jay understood what we were after. And, and in, I mean, he, we became a certified B Corp maybe like two years after he, uh, after his group put money in. Um, so it wasn't uh, like he was, he's a, a significant member on the board and, and was part of that, uh, was part of that conversation and part of that exploration. Um, and, and, uh, um, what I'm what I'm what I'm trying to to articulate here is uh, th- there is when you when you when you take a stakeholder approach and, and you tr- and you truly have a team that that buys into it, I really think the waterfall of profits is is significantly more than than taking these like short term approach that are always profit driven, and and Jay and his team got that and and it's playing out for everybody. Um, the, the reality is that when when you create wins and you and you treat people the way you like to be treated, there's a lot of more there's there's a lot of great business opportunities that present themselves. Um, Jay's fund has also got a construct that that doesn't have a five year mandate. Okay, and they're certainly motivated by a three x return, and he's got the entire management team, my team, motivated by a three x return. Um, but his uh, his firm is all it's all family money. Um, so they don't they don't start and end funds. They don't have expiration periods. Right, family office. They've got like a permanent capital vehicle, so that it takes the pressure off, and it makes a lot more sense for somebody that, you know, you have a you have a longer term time horizon. I do, and 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 sometimes it would play out where business does beats expectations, and they're out in three years, or sometimes it's ten years, or sometimes they 
love dividend businesses. Yeah. But I mean, I I had friends like you, or when I was exploring this private equity process, you know, I under I didn't I got a chance to understand how these funds are set up differently, and I think that was really important in in understanding what kind of partner I wanted, and um, I mean, the whole driving reason for for going out and trying to find a private private equity partner was was to get that expertise of of been there and done that so yeah. that we ultimately could um you know in, avoid the invisible tripwire and and the concept of making repeatable mistakes that we just didn't recognize because we didn't have the experience to recognize them um so uh it was it, that was like that was a horrible process though uh not like finding the partner but but going through the diligence i remember talking to you about that and and just saying like hey once i found the partner it was like i was so happy i was sort of exhausted now it's time to get back to running the business and then you go through this diligence process and these third parties come in and t- tell you uh t- tell you all about why your your baby's not perfect and and that was a uh, um that was a tough that was a that was a tough and long process for me Luke, I I recently read a a great article in the New York Times that made me feel like a sloth, and it was an article about how you spend your week. How do you manage your time? How do you you manage to do the things that are important to you? The answer that comes to mind right now is I I recently, like a year and a half ago, joined uh, YPO, Young President's Organization, and and I'm I'm part of an incredible forum. Uh, My forum mates are just fantastic. But one afternoon every month, we we sit together and, and kind of look and take a deep dive on, on three significant bu- buckets, your personal, family, and professional. And, and you, you, you rank them, but you get an opportunity to, to reflect on, on how you're doing in all three of those categories because ultimately balance is key. Yeah. And uh, I definitely struggle with balance every month, but, but taking kind of a personal inventory of how, how the business is doing, how your family's doing and how your person's doing is important because what you'll find is that once the one leg of that stool is is shorter or longer than the other, you, you lose balance. Yeah. Um, and 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 it's it just gets it it always gets back to like like figuring out what makes you tick and then surrounding yourself with with great people. I mean, my, my wife is an absolute rock star and affords me just a lot of a lot of flexibility and and i and i i try to um from a professional standpoint and i try and ultimately uh always be present when i'm with with her and my daughter um and the business right now is demanding it's it's got me all over the country on a on a weekly monthly basis um so i in order to like kind of be present and deal with the demanding aspects of business I ultimately like what makes me tick is exercise so I often try and get um, often I really do get my exercise in every morning and it's just kind of that centering piece that that enables me to 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 look at those three legs of the stool and ultimately try and stay balanced yeah sometimes things that take time actually make everything else work so whether it's exercise or or you know the med- meditation practice or going for a walk like you know, these are things that you may say I'm too busy, but um, it's sort of like if you don't put, you know, gas in the car or oil, you know, the, the parts of the car, and you know, clearly I'm not a mechanic, <laughs> that's sad, uh, it's not going to work. 
Luke, this is the show about finding the power to choose what you actually want and the courage to miss out on the rest. So for somebody who looks at your story and says, this guy went from a small town in Maine to you know working investment banking to being a CEO of a business that really reflects his values, what is your, what's your advice to somebody who wants to follow that kind of path? Find your passion. I mean, that's, that's at the end of the day, like that's what's gotten me to where I am today. Um, I've, 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 I've followed my passion and, and I've been very fortunate. Um, I've, I've followed my passion and I've always treated people the way I'd like to be treated. Mm. And that's enabled me to surround my people, surround myself with people that are s- smarter than I am and that have skills that I don't have. And, um, and, and that has just pulsed over the last, uh, 10 years professionally and I've just been I've, I've been very fortunate um, and and I I'm having fun and like at the end of the day I think when you when you can follow a passion and 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 uh, um, work hard and treat people right it's it uh it plays out in the end that's that's a uh, that's a great thing to aspire to and if people want to follow you um, and find you uh, online um, uh, where should they go? At Luke's Lobster. Um, uh, we're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, all of those social channels. And um, yeah, we uh, it's, that was fun too. I mean, back in 2009, we were kind of one of those first businesses that that adopted social media as yes. a, as an opportunity to build that community outside of the outside of the four walls. And so we're very active there, and that's a it's a fun place for us to engage with our guests yeah so if you love seafood um and lobsters and uh just a good friendly vibe that's the place to check it out all right luke uh uh, thanks so much for coming by today i think i'm gonna go uh uh, go have a lobster roll now after all all this conversation and um we look forward to watching the business grow and wish you the best of luck thanks for having me today fomo And now it's time for the FOMO moment of the show, which is the time when I talk about FOMO and its role in pop culture or tell you about something that's giving me FOMO. So as a native of Maine, I love lobster rolls and I have an unofficial policy. I try to eat at least one a week. And here's why. Lobster, eat in moderation, is a healthy source of protein, vitamins and minerals. Of course, like anything that is truly delicious, it does have its drawbacks. A one-cup serving has 71% of the entire day's upper recommendation of cholesterol and 31% of the sodium that you need. So as long as you stick to the tried-and-true saying of all things in moderation and make sure not to go too heavy on the butter or mayo, uh, lobster is a great thing to add to your diet, and you should definitely try it out, potentially at Luke's Lobster. FOMO. If you have an idea for the faux moment of the week or you have a question, reach out to me at letsconnect at patrickmcginnis.com or send me a tweet at PJ McGinnis. Also, you can take the official FOMO Sapiens diagnostic at patrickmcginnis.com slash FOMO-quiz and find out if you're a FOMO Sapiens. FOMO Sapiens is part of the HBR Presents Network. The show is produced by AW360 and recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis. If you like today's show, please be sure to subscribe, rate it, and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at patrickmcginnis.com. You can also take the official FOMO diagnostic at patrickmcginnis.com slash FOMO quiz to find out if you're a FOMO sapiens.